All right, everybody, welcome into the Alley-Oop. I'm your host, Ryan Blackburn. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. All of those positive five-star reviews and liking and subscribing on YouTube videos, those have been extremely helpful over the course of this last week. Thank you so much for putting in the time, putting in the effort, and supporting the channel. This helps tremendously. On this podcast episode, really excited to talk to the Central Division folks. Lots of interesting teams in this one, some up and down teams, some interesting things to cover with Caitlin Cooper and the Indiana Pacers, Ty Windish and the Milwaukee Bucks, Justin Rowan and the Cleveland Cavaliers, Kevin Farragan and the Chicago Bulls, and Ku Khalil and the Detroit Pistons. Lots of awesome content here. Once again, please rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't yet. Would be extremely, extremely helpful. And tell a friend about the Alley Oop with Ryan Blackburn. Now, without further ado, here is the Alley Oop. Run, two on one, green the finish. Wow, the alley oop. Turn the corner, inside! He made Yusuf Nurkic a screensaver! Here comes Murray, alley up to Gordon! Oh, what a play! All right, joining me now, Caitlin Cooper covering the Indiana Pacers for us here. She does basketball, she wrote. Make sure to sign up for that Patreon. Is tr- tremendous content and really appreciate Caitlin for all that she brings to the basketball community here. Uh, Caitlin, the Indiana Pacers, let's talk about them. Seven and four record to begin the season and two and oh now in the in season tournament. But the biggest story about this group has to be just how unbelievable Tyrese Halliburton is, right? Right. I mean, somehow it turns out that a little bit more of Tyrese Halliburton is actually even better than the normal amount of Tyrese Halliburton. I think that's kind of where it's been. It's not that his usage has gone up a ton or he's taking that many more shots, but he's taking a few more and his efficiency is somehow even better. He's well above 50, 40, 90 right now, up to scoring average by around four to five points. So getting even a little bit more of him has been a huge boon to the Pacers offense, which is currently ranked number one in the NBA, including in the half court. So Number one in the NBA, 32 assists to zero turnovers over the course of these last two games for Tyrese. And and both come against the, the Philadelphia 76ers, which is, I mean, one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference, especially. They've been tremendous. Three of six from three for Tyrese in the first game, seven of 12 from three in game two. Just watching that, it seems like he continues to push himself and the Pacers continue to push him. Take the pull up three. You are really good at it. And I know he gets like the, the shooting form gets talked about a lot, but he makes them and he is just he has improved in such a tremendous way for like a player that I think a lot of people thought would be a role player at the NBA level. He is a true blue superstar. Yeah, I mean, there was one in the second game against Philadelphia on Tuesday night where he literally was dribbling up in transition. And I don't know that I've ever seen him, let alone, I don't probably just about Steph, maybe fake a handoff to Obi Toppin in transition to the three-point arc, fake it, and then just automatically turn and, and pop a three and make it. I was trying to look up on Second Spectrum if, there, if that event had occurred back-to-back where somebody faked a handoff and then made a three, and I couldn't find a return. So that's, wild. that's the type of stuff that Tyrese is doing right now. But he's so creative, and he's so, like, the decision-making, I made a point about this uh, a, a couple videos ago, about how awesome the decision making always is with him he's always been a low turnover guy he's always driving positive offense and the simple act of not making mistakes when you're out there 
it helps everything where everybody knows where to be. Everybody can expect the ball in the right place at the right time. And uh, he has helped elevate this group to the best offense in the NBA. And I I don't know if it's going to keep up. Like it's, it's still very early in the season, but I don't see any reason why this should stop that he is, is making consistent reads and Indiana is taking advantage every single time. It's been really cool to see, uh, Miles Turner, second option on this team, kind of the the less heralded member of that that pick and roll duo and that pick and pop duo. But what does he provide for Indiana that helps them become so special on that end? Well, yeah, man, I think you could see it in this in this two game against Philadelphia. It's been a real hurdle for Miles over the years to play against Joel Embiid. In part because a lot of times he's just not on the court against Joel Embiid. He gets into early foul trouble, which was, again, the the case in this game. He picked up early fouls. The Pacers were going through practically every center. They survived playing Obi Toppin and Aaron Neesmith at the five and actually built a lead. But then a big turning point for him is over the last six minutes, Miles comes back in to go against Embiid, and the Sixers don't cross-match that for whatever reason, and he's really putting Embiid into space. Um, you know, a lot of times, like, Embiid's not really a guy who's going to go out there against a stretch shooter. Typically, he's kind of going to wave, like, you know, somebody else go do it, and I'm going to stay low because my rim protection matters. So that's that's kind of free points. But Miles is shooting above 40% from three to start the season on pretty decent volume. And what you are seeing, because Miles and Jalen both play somewhat similarly, is they can kind of carry over their style from the starting unit to the bench. And while... I don't completely believe in the idea of a stretch five in terms of what it does to opposing rim protectors, because a lot of times, like I said, the rim protector is still going to stay back. You are seeing them draw weak side defenders over and stunts over to the point where now if you're playing Buddy Heald adjacent to that pick and roll, it's basically a cheat code. Like, what are you doing then? Like, if you are, if, if Miles has hit a couple threes in that game to the point where, you know, the Milwaukee Bucks are sending a stunt or the Sixers are sending a stunt, and then you have Buddy there to either cut that stunt or just make a three, and you have Tyrese Halliburton who can, you know, look off a defender, he'll stare at Miles, that stunt will run at Miles, and then he'll throw it to Buddy. Like, there's just a lot of unpredictability, and especially with like their Spain pick and roll actions, even when Tyrese hit that dagger against Philadelphia. Buddy didn't play particularly well in terms of box score stats in that game, but him leaking out of the Spain pick-and-roll action confused Philadelphia's defense just enough that now Tyrese is hitting a dagger. So the three of them in combination together just give you a lot of different options that you can go to, and Miles has grown, I think, to an extent, and what he does against switches as well. He's really gotten a little bit better at doing the little half-shoulder turn, half-fake against the switch, or even against the big so that he can get to his hook shot, which has grown for him over the last year and a half, I would say. He's Awesome. And and the way that those three in particular work in concert together has always been improving, but now it is at this elite level and teams are struggling to figure that out. And I I have no idea how I would guard that if if Tyrese is distributing the way that he is and is now capable of scoring the way that he is. Who who do you even go to in that situation? Who do you who are you running off the three point line when all of those guys are shooting the way that they do? I buddy is like one of the most dangerous shooters we've ever seen. So, well, and another really element. Oh, yeah, sorry. Another element too is they are number one right now in points scored out of picks per chance, according to Second Spectrum. So, something that they do is they set more non-contact screens or more ghost screens than any other team in the NBA for 100 possessions by quite a bit. And like when you said that Tyrese is always going to find the advantage, that's that's kind of part of it too. Because like even in that Sixers game. 
the Sixers literally pivoted to putting Joel Embiid on TJ McConnell so that they could keep him around the basket. Pacers were just like, okay, well, we'll just use TJ McConnell as the screener then. So Embiid has to come up closer to Tyrese. And as soon as he does, Tyrese is like, oh, I'm just going to reject that pick. I'm going to draw the person off the read spot. And now I'm finding Obi Toppin. And Obi Toppin hasn't shot the three particularly well to start the season, but he does do a lot of cutting underneath and around the pick and roll to the point where, you know, they had the second highest output in franchise history against the San Antonio Spurs. And a pretty decent part of that was Victor Wembanyama was guarding Obi Toppin as like he likes to do on the weak side. And he just takes up so much space that the Pacers were like, hey, literally anytime you're on the ball side and Victor's guarding you, you're moving to the other side of the court. You're making a shallow cut. You're cutting underneath the basket, and that just makes the pick and roll that much harder to defend against them because now who's the tagger? You know, it's, no. it's those types of things. Yeah, it, it it is, I think, a creative mind's dream in, in a lot of ways, and it's, it's one of the reasons why we value your input on this and your ability to see this and, and to kind of diagnose how it goes because Indiana is such a creative team in the in the way that they use these guys and the way that they take advantage of Halliburton's ability to see the floor 11 to 13 points uh, you've got six different players on, on the roster that are averaging between 11 and 13 and that doesn't happen if you don't have a guy who is willing to distribute the ball all around the floor uh just who among that that group is it Bruce Brown is it Benedict Matherin is it like who who among that group has really stood out in in a way where maybe not separating themselves, but, but better than expected. Yeah. I mean, I think you said it best. Like Tyrese is so inclusive and because of the fast place that they play at, it can really be anybody that goes off on any given night. I think that Ben had a really big and important step for him against the Milwaukee Bucks, not even so much because of what he did on offense. And he scored 26 points in that game and he scored at all three levels in that game, but because of what he did at the end of the game defensively. And I think what got most of the attention is the fact that he stripped the ball from Giannis Antetokounmpo twice, and it was really good that he sat on that spin move. And it was better because the Pacers actually sent a few double teams, which they can be pretty reluctant to do. But he also was guarding Chris Middleton at the end of that game, too, and prevented Chris from turning over his left shoulder. He got switched on to Brooke Lopez and boxed him out. Those types of things are the stuff that the Pacers really need, because like we pointed out, their offense is so formidable to start the beginning of the season that they don't have to be a good defense. They don't even have to be a bad defense. They just need to not be a terrible defense. If they're merely like, meh, that's not great. Like they're outscoring people by a, a sizable margin in terms of net rating. So seeing Ben take those steps, if I'm the Pacers coaching staff, after I see that, I'm just like going to be running that on an infinite loop at practice and being like, Hey, we know you can do this now. Like you were not great through the first seven or eight games. Like a lot of off ball lapses. You got cooked by Karis LeVert. There's a reason you haven't been in the closing lineup, but we left you out there in this game and you, you did this. So that was to me really critical to start the season. Then overall, I just think Aaron Neesmith has been really terrific for the Pacers. They signed him to an extension early, but I don't know how many people who don't regularly watch them know that like he played, he was the starting four for them last year. He's been coming off the bench at the four this year. He plays a lot of different positions. Most importantly, perhaps is that like, like when miles and Isaiah Jackson, Jalen Smith gets hurt, he comes in at the five and he's fronting Joel Embiid for a good five to six minute stretch. He's just a workhorse who can do a lot of different things. And clearly he's been shooting the three at a very high level to 
start the season on pretty decent volume, almost five attempts. He's over 40%. And he's also putting the ball on the floor a lot more. You're seeing him do stuff like last year, he would have had, I believe, the the highest percentage of his field goal attempts were assisted last year. Like he really had to be spoon fed behind the arc in order for him to score. And he worked on the summer to be able to do some stuff above the break because he thought he was going to be able to pay, play the three. And now that's paying dividends for him at the four as well. So I think he's definitely been a standout for the Pacers in terms of just making a lot of different lineup combinations work for them. It was interesting. I was going to ask you about Jairus Walker. Just haven't seen him get off the bench that much so far this year, but it sounds like the way that Aaron Neesmith has continued to progress, it hasn't made it as as mandatory for Jairus to play early on in his career. That seems like something that could change throughout the season as, well, maybe a guy gets injured here or there. Maybe there's a, a kind of a flip in the rotation, but as the 27th defensive rating as that kind of, if it stays in place it just it wouldn't surprise me if Jarris gets a little bit more of of a run here you you talked about him kind of preseason with me he, he might be their defensive option in a lot of ways in some of those lineups just to be a bigger body and play a little bit stouter in, in some of those combinations but I, to this point it's it's hard to argue with the results here for Indiana despite the fact that he hasn't suited up so far yeah, I mean, I think part of the problem for Jairus is the Pacers are kind of hovering around a nine-man rotation. Sometimes it's a 10-man rotation if they get TJ McConnell out there and Aaron's playing at the four because they already have Andrew and TJ and Buddy. You know, just that's the way to get Aaron minutes. And because Jairus had some okay moments in preseason at that end of the floor, but then like he played in the fourth quarter of the one game in garbage time when the entire defense was bad against the Boston Celtics. They gave up over 150 points, but Jairus had a lot of moments where if he was switching out to Peyton Pritchard, he got beat. If he was the low man, he was making the wrong rotation. Like he really likes to chase the ball. He jumped at pump fakes. Like he just needs to be able to rein some of that in. And I think it's just going to be a matter of time for him because he's coming from a college system that ran a very aggressive hedging scheme where he had to be very proactive. And this is, this is very different than that. The low man's very conservative. They don't do a lot of overzealousness there with help. So if he's out of position, it can kind of throw them off rhythm a bit. So I think that the idea of his defense is a little bit different than what the current reality of it is. So I don't know how they actually envision if he'll end up getting some games later on at the G League. I think that Tom Hankins, the head coach of the G League, had mentioned that in an interview that he did with Scott Agnes that they might get to see Ben Shepard and Jairus there on occasion. But like you said, I don't think anything's set in stone. So if he does start to get a handle on some of that a little bit more and there are some injuries, it's not like they have a ton of depth at the four spot. I mean, they, they typically have to play really small if they don't have one of those guys out there. Yeah, just that that seems... It seemed like the natural recourse, but if he's not ready, then they're the, he's not ready. That's pretty clear. Um, last question I have for you. Defense, as, as we mentioned, uh, 27th. Ah, Denver started 28th last season, and, and they were 28th through basically November. And people in Denver were wondering, why is this happening? What's going on? How can they figure it out? And then they figured it out, and Denver won a championship. How does the defense for Indiana get from point A to point B? It's okay that it starts in the like in the gutter, basically, but how can it improve throughout the season? If if you were running the team, what what would you do? I mean, I think with the scheme that they're employing, it's going to have to be a slow build and you're going to have to hold on to those little steps that you see like from Benedict Mathern against the Milwaukee Bucks and hope that those continue to accumulate as the season goes. Because the scheme is radically different from last year. They didn't have the results that they wanted. 
Um, I thought a lot of that more had to do with a lot of their on-ball defense and that being leaky. But if you look at the numbers, like what they were doing schematically didn't really match what the numbers said. So they had a very aggressive nail presence. Like I said, they were overzealous with a low man at times. They did a lot of appeal switching to make up for people getting beat on the perimeter, a decent amount of nexting based on reads. And yet, you know, they were bottom five in points allowed in the paint. Like with that type of scheme, you should be giving more up at the three point line. And then they were like they were giving up high quality three point shots, even though they weren't giving up a high, you know, above the break frequency and corner three frequency. Now they're basically like they're number one in the NBA at at limiting above the break threes and like number two or three in limiting corner threes. So in a way, it's kind of like we need to teach this mentality of defending individual matchups, guarding your yard is the phrase that they like to say. And even though they haven't mastered that, I mean, they're they're bottom of the league in rim frequency and opponent points in the paint. Like, this isn't necessarily working for them. But I think that you're hoping over time that that gets better. And at the very least, at least we're limiting opponent three-point attempts. Because last year, they kind of were not doing either one necessarily. I think that, like, I'm somebody who still kind of buys into peel switching over the pursuit just because I think it's kinetic energy. I think that you run off to the perimeter instead of, especially because they have guys who are going to be more out to get, to get beat. Um, they need more, like some of it goes back to Tyrese too. Cause at the end of the bulls game, as good as Tyrese has been, the bulls hunted him relentlessly out of the same set. And they're a team that doesn't want to double. Like if it's a post mismatch, they're not going to double. Like that was rare to see them be doing that as much as they did against Embiid and Tap finally make that transition against Giannis once Giannis had gotten up over 40 points in that game they really wanted to stay home on shooters so um gonna need more steps from Tyrese in terms of in my opinion hedge and recover is kind of kind of have to be the solution for him if this is what they want to keep doing so I just think the overall answer if this is what they envision the defense to be this is what they think the future of NBA defense is going to be is they're just going to have to keep getting internal development otherwise the answers are going to have to come externally I think it's going to have at that point it's going to have to be roster changes because They've now had same coaching staff try two radically different schemes, and they're still bottom five right now. So those are really the only two paths forward, I think. Well, we will see which path they decide to choose. I, I think it's probably still too early to make a, a firm judgment one way or the other on it. But uh, like I said, there there is capability to turn it around, to bounce back, even without a major roster change. So we will see what happens. But she is Caitlin Cooper. Uh, creator of Basketball She Wrote. Make sure to go follow her on our Patreon and follow all of her Indiana Pacers coverage. Caitlin, thank you so much for tuning in. Really appreciate it. And, and I'll talk to you in six weeks, all right? Hey, thanks for having me again. All right, joining me now, Ty Windish, who hosts the Eurostep podcast for the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, does great Milwaukee Bucks coverage here. Ty, thank you so much for popping on. Let's talk about Milwaukee here. Seven and four record. It feels like it should be fine. And then some of the feelings are also a little bit iffy. And I think the perspective that a lot of people have from the outside is that this it kind of feels worse than what the actual record is and maybe what the actual numbers are. Uh, why does it feel worse than it actually is in your, in your mind? Um, well, I think some of it is skepticism of rookie head coach Adrian Griffin, which is obviously fair. You know, whenever a rookie head coach comes into a situation like this, I think they're going to be, uh, you know, analyzed under a magnifying glass, even more so than, you know, Mike Budenholzer would have been, who certainly was no uh, stranger to criticism during his time at the helm in Milwaukee either. Um, I, I think that's a large part of it. And also just the expectation was so big and the team looked so different than the you know last five years of the Bucks, both because of scheme changes and just the personnel. I mean, it's it's obvious, but 
without Drew Holiday and Javon Carter and Wes Matthews, adding in Damian Lillard and you know the guards they added in, you're just going to be worse defensively no matter what you run. That's that's kind of inescapable. And I think there was a real low point early in the year. The first four games before kind of Brooke Lopez began dropping again, they, they the team kind of came together with Griffin and said, hey, we have to play this way. Like This is the way that we're going to defend best. Since then, I think the defense has been better. It's still not great. I don't really expect it to be great most of the time, to be honest, but it's been better. Um, and I think the team overall looks better as well. There's still a lot to figure out. I think even me, like the process is taking longer than expected to get everyone acclimated and on the same page. But overall, I'd say it was kind of started really excited. Ooh, first four games are kind of ugly. Since then, it's been uneven uh, until last night uh, in Toronto, the second game in Toronto for the Bucks this year. Not many easy wins, you could say. Uh, the Bulls one wasn't bad either. But I do think things are coming together. Damian Lillard rounding into form. So that's been really helpful. Um, and I think overall, it feels like the Bucks are on a good track, even if they're not the juggernaut people would have expected in the first 10, 11 games here. Yeah, definitely a bit of a damn breakout game. Uh, on Wednesday against the Raptors, 37 points, 13 assists, 16 free throw attempts once again, and, and a plus 25 in that game. That's a that's a big time win. That's a big time performance without Giannis, especially. And uh, the offense is it's just not something people are going to be super concerned about. Uh, yeah, he he hasn't shot the ball well, but nobody really believes that he's just going to fall off a cliff immediately. Eighth in offense on cleaning the glass. It is really the the twenty fifth ranking in defense for the Bucks that I think a lot has a lot of people spooked. I wonder if we could just talk about this like before drop versus a- after drop in terms of the this actual early portion of the schedule. Uh, is that kind of where you're looking for this from from Brook Lopez specifically, or what? What about the perimeter defense is still uh, kind of concerning to you? Yeah, I think certainly I've been looking at the last, you know, X and number of games minus four on, on NBA stats or, you know, and when I, I haven't looked at cleaning the glass as much, but just to see like, okay, what have they been doing, you know, since they, since they started defending that way again? Um, and Brooks numbers, you know, I think you looked at, they, they allowed 80% shooting at the rim, which was dead last the first four games. I believe they're, they had a top two figure last time I checked before the Raptors game. And given the way the Raptors shot in that game, I'm guessing it didn't, didn't get much worse for Milwaukee. So uh, Brooke has had, I think, five or more blocks multiple times in these. Like one of the only times he's done that in his career. So I think there's a little bit of a concern that I had before I dug into those rim numbers specifically. Like, you know, is Brooke not a good fit or is Brooke, you know, has he declined a bit since being second in DPOY voting last year? The answer seems to be no, not really at this point. He's still defending the rim at a high level. I think the defense is coming with him. The perimeter defense is more of an, an adventure. I think um, there's a lot of Bucks fans and analysts, uh, and probably myself included, who think Malik Beasley probably shouldn't be starting. The issue there is, you know, once we kind of firmly reached this conclusion, gave him a few games to see, and he tries on defense. He just cannot really navigate screens at all, which turns out is a problem, especially if you're going to drop, you know. Chris Middleton sits out first game of a back-to-back. Jay Crowder comes in the starting lineup. We go, okay, maybe this is like a sneaky indirect lineup change. Chris comes back and Crowder just stays. 
Well, then Crowder gets hurt and he's out eight weeks. And then it's like, well, you know, maybe Marjon can make some sense stepping in. But now Giannis is out for a game and they're starting Andre Jackson, probably just to add even more perimeter defense. And, you know, you're not worried about spacing as much with that group with if you're replacing Giannis in particular. And then Marjon against the Raptors goes out with a with a twisted ankle. So um, I, I think there's just been a lot of flux and probably trying to make less lineup changes is better given they've had to make so many due to injuries. So I think putting in a more defensive savvy player in that group could help the Bucks start stronger, which had been an issue for them before the last week or so. Um, but overall, I think that's just going to have to be more of a personnel than scheme decision. I just don't think there's that many ways, you know, you can really cover up starting Dame Lillard and Malik Beasley together. Their zone has probably been the best. They do that a fair bit, but again, it's, you know, I think I think they probably just need a different look there. Crowder going out is just tough for that, though, because he made a lot of sense to slide in the way he was playing. Just a really unfortunate timing on that abdominal injury. Yeah, so who then would you kind of go to in that situation? Is that more of a, a Marjan Beauchamp kind of uh, addition into the starting lineup? Is that Andre Jackson, who's a, a highly touted defensive rookie? Uh, is it somebody else that, that we haven't mentioned yet? Who, who would be the ideal kind of running mate at that two guard for Damian Lillard in your mind? I think Marjan probably makes the most sense with Crowder out of the picture. Um, Andre Jackson, for all he does well, you know, not not a proven shooter. And the shot is, you know, the form is, um, it's not picturesque, we'll say, to put it nicely. He, he makes them occasionally. Uh, we'll say it's gotten better. When he came in as a rookie, it was really like Lonzo Ball, early stage is bad. Now it's just kind of a hitchy, not not ideal form, but... I think Marjan is a little more polished offensively. And as much as you don't need offense per se in a group that's going to have Chris Middleton, Damian Lillard, and Giannis Tedekumpo, I, I, I think you don't want guys that defenses just ignore. And they already kind of do it with Brooke Lopez. I don't want to make it easy. I'm sure they will leave Marjan or whoever. I mean, they leave Malik Beasley, who's a, a great shooter. That's just the choices defenses have to make. But I'm a little worried about Andre Jackson and Giannis starting, although Andre Jackson does defend – or excuse me – does work really well with the ball, even if he's not shooting. He's a good floater. He's a great passer. Anyway, I, I think Marjan makes sense. We'll see how, how if any, time he misses due to the ankle. Um, outside of the two rookies, though, I'm not sure there's anyone else who makes a ton of sense to step in. Or, excuse me, one rookie and one second-year player. Um, Bobby Portis did not start in place of Giannis, as many expected. I think that's kind of just to maintain the integrity to a certain extent of the big man rotation. Uh, not start your two only real playable bigs with Giannis out of the lineup. Wouldn't expect him to start with Giannis either. And campaign is just kind of the, you know, come in for Dame, move the ball around guy. He has played with Dame some later in games, but I wouldn't expect him to start either. And that covers most of the rotation outside of, you know, we had a little Thanasis, we had a little AJ Green. I don't think either of those guys are going to start uh, either, to say the least. Yeah, it just it does feel like the Bucks are a little bit hamstrung right now by injuries for one but also just kind of a, a lack of choice on on the perimeter when you're when you're thinking about okay can we put together a good lineup defensively to bolster what Dame and Giannis are going to do offensively I, I'm still kind of waiting for that and I think a lot of people are waiting for that too uh, let's talk about this Chris Middleton minute restriction what's going on there because I, I think a lot of folks especially when it comes to Milwaukee and, and why it feels a little bit weird. Milwaukee, like Chris Middleton is like one of the most important pieces for this team. And he's, he's always been one of the most important pieces for this team. And it just feels like 
this minute restriction just isn't going away. What's the latest with him? Yeah, it's been a little odd that it hasn't gone up more recently. Um, the the interesting thing about it is everything that we've heard, it's not like, oh, Chris isn't progressing. Chris can't play more. It's that they just they have their plan for him and they're being very cautious. I think last year kind of, you know, maybe qu- quickly ramping him up and then there were some issues with his ramp up. Uh, very sadly, you know, his father passed last year and kind of that took him away from his first ramp up and then he had the injury and had to come back again. It feels like I don't want to say an overcorrection. You know, I'm not a, a doctor or any sort of you know physical therapist or anything. It maybe it feels like an abundance of caution after what happened last year and saying we're going to make sure you know he was at 16 for a little bit. He's been around 20 now. Hope we're hoping to see mid 20s and then high 20s. You know, in the coming weeks here, still not playing back to backs. It feels like from what we've heard, they want to be really cautious and make sure Chris is going to be in position to play his full best basketball you know, April, May, June versus trying to get him back fully in November and then have some sort of a setback. So in, unless until we hear something about, you know, his condition doing worse, I'm not, I would say, worried about it long term. You'd obviously like him to play more. It's it's weird. You know, again, I'd love if Chris could play 30 minutes a game. That would help the Bucks a lot. Um, but I, I guess it's like I just look at it as weird and a short term negative for now. And hoping that it it you know goes away before anything worse happens. Last thing I have for you here, your belief has has that changed at all after watching these first eleven games? What are you kind of expecting from the group going forward? And and kind of has these last eleven kind of changed your frame of reference for what to expect from this group at all? I'd say it dipped after the first couple of games, and then since we've seen the defense. I mean, really, the it, it was just not tenable for two of those first four games. Kind of worked in two of the others. Just seeing the defense, you know, have that respectability, that that baseline of everything else goes wrong. You know, we're giving up mostly mid rangers. We still got Brook and and most of the time Giannis in the paint. You know, that that should be enough when Dame and Giannis get more acclimated and get going. So I'd say it, it dipped, and now it's been slowly rising back up. I think it's been very clear to me these last couple of weeks that, you know, John Horse built a roster to fit Drew Holiday at the point guard, and he is no longer there. And I'm, you know, I've said things like this. People go, "Oh, you're dissing John Horse." No, I'm not. I mean, that he did a good job, I think, building around Drew Holiday. You're not going to say no to Damian Lillard just because you got Malik Beasley instead of Wes Matthews. Just to throw, you know, an example of two guys out there. So. Um, I, I think there's going to be kind of a shifting at the deadline. I think the period between now and then, when you know a lot of guys aren't trade eligible yet, really big time for these young players. You know, you're Marjon Bochamp, you're Andre Jackson to prove, hey, maybe you don't need to get this guy. Maybe we can do this. I would expect they'll get someone anyway. John Horace loves adding defensive-oriented wings at the deadline, uh, and I think a trade like that could help this group a lot, just as you mentioned the balancing. Um, but factoring in that that probably happens to some extent, and this group is coming together, and I think Adrian Griffin is is improving as he goes and fitting this roster better. And the adaptability he's shown gives me a lot of hope for the playoffs. It's really the opposite of what the Bucks have done. There have been costs to that in the short term. I do think being able to shift through multiple defensive coverages on the fly in games is a big deal for the Bucks, and it will help them. So I feel good. It's been a rockier road than I'd hoped, but I feel good long term about this team. 
We will see what happens. He is Ty Windish, host of the Eurostep podcast. Make sure to go check out all of his work covering the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, Ty, thank you so much for taking the time, man. Really appreciate it. I'll talk to you in six weeks, all right? Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me as always, Ryan. Joined now by Justin Rowan. He is a fantastic expert on the Cleveland Cavaliers, host of the Chase Down podcast, uh, and, and our correspondent here for the Alley of covering Cleveland. Thank you so much for hopping on, man. Look uh, at you gassing up this bicycle, calling me fantastic already. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, I appreciate well, it. It's good to talk to you again. We'll, we'll just, it just means that you have to provide maximum effort on these next 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, I, that's, I hate that's, you. that's exactly what it is. Uh, the, the listeners are like, oh, wow, he's being nice to his guest, but really it's putting the pressure on me. And I, I, I see go. what you're doing, and I don't appreciate it. Uh, let's let's talk about Cleveland. Hey, here we go. <laughs> let's talk about Cleveland. The Cleveland Cavaliers, five and six record, uh, kind of some below average numbers in in terms of like net rating, offensive rating, defensive rating, injuries, absences have clearly plagued the team a little bit. What what have been some of the health issues that have kind of really run through this team at this point? Because it seems like everybody and their mothers kind of kind of dealing with something right now. Yeah, so uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, Darius Garland had injured his hamstring in preseason. He gave it a go on opening night against Brooklyn. Um, obviously, re-aggravated or, uh, at that point and missed the next few games. Jared Allen, uh, bone bruise in his foot, missed the, the start of the season, has been back for the last six games. Um, then Garland comes back. He's starting to get his legs under him. Uh, finally starting to take a few more threes. You, you could tell he just didn't have the, the legs there uh, with, with the hamstring issues and, you know, missing so much time. And then uh, JaVale McGee pushes him from behind and his head smashes into Mobley's knee and he's got a neck issue. So he's questionable for Friday's game against Detroit. It sounds like he's not going to miss too much time there, but uh, it's really been the story of the season. It, it's It's been rather unfortunate. Uh, they had a game against Indiana where looked like they may may steal it, but uh, they were playing without Garland, Mitchell, and Allen in that game. So it, it's been very frustrating, uh, especially as you navigate a tough opening uh, schedule um, for, for them to you know be shorthanded in the ways that they are. It, it's really... Uh, it's taken a little bit of the wind out of the sails uh, when it comes to this season. Yeah, it certainly has felt that way and kind of flirting with 500 under 500 for a little bit here. Uh, this team has dealt with some some injury issues with this core in the past where kind of I, I think dating back to right at the end of the season a couple of years ago where you like heading into the playing tournament. You're just not sure who's going to play, not sure how guys are going to be able to gut it out and. Obviously, you'd rather deal with these issues early, but it doesn't make it better. It doesn't make it more fun to, to have to worry about it. Uh, how have the new guys fit in, whether it's George Niang, whether it's Max Struess? I know that that was a big storyline for us heading into the year. Yeah, so I, I think the one that's really fit in nicely is Max Struess. Max Struess has been phenomenal. You look at the on-off numbers and it's as good as anybody on the team um the the gravity that he has really does make a big difference um he is averaging career highs in, in points rebounds assists blocks steals uh the the gravity is obviously the 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 main thing that everybody focused on but uh people wondered hey is this guy going to shoot as good in a wine jersey as he did in a red jersey you know leaving that Miami heat culture and um not to discredit 
uh, what Miami did in terms of player development. They, <laughs> I, I think it's it's very significant and it played a big role. But this is a guy that seems to have continued to get better. Um, I, I think the one thing to to keep in mind, or the one thing I'm keeping an eye on, is when you look at his shooting splits in games where Darius Garland plays, he shoots 46 percent from three, and in games where Garland doesn't play, it's 25 uh, percent. Um, so. As I was rattling off injuries, I forgot to mention Ricky Rubio still not with the team. Ty Jerome ankle sprained. He's been out as well. So the Cavs have been playing a lot of games without a single point guard in the lineup. And uh, for a team that seemed to have a lot of guard depth coming in, somehow we are back in this point where uh, undrafted rookie Craig Porter Jr. Ha- has been playing some minutes. So it uh, definitely it, it's been a trying start to the season for sure. No, for sure. And like I, I was looking up this number for Nikola Jokic. I was looking up his clutch defensive rebounding because it, it feels like he grabs every single defensive rebound. You know the one player in NBA rotations that is grabbing more defensive rebounds than the clutch? Max Struess. Believe it. He's he's been a he's been a monster. Like he's really been contributing. Those were so important in those games where um uh Jared Allen missed. Uh, they actually kind of really found something with the front court of Max Struess, Isaac Okoro, and Evan Mobley. Uh, Okoro, God, I, again, another injury I forgot. Like His knee issue uh, flared up, the, the same one that had bothered him in the playoffs, so the Cavs are giving him some time off. He's once again out against Detroit. Um, so it's been a very, very long list of injuries when it comes to the Cavs. And like I said before, it came in a tough time when it came to schedule. Uh Dunks and threes does a terrific job of, you know, the, the uh, schedule adjusted net ratings and uh, coming into uh, prior to the Portland game, they actually had played the toughest schedule or a second toughest schedule in terms of offenses that they face, you know, playing Indiana mm-hmm. twice. The worst offense they've played uh, prior to the Portland game was Sacramento, who had the best offense in NBA history and had De'Aaron Fox return that game. Um, so you, when you look at their adjusted net ratings and whatnot it's actually not that bad they're fifth in adjusted net rating 11th in offense and fifth in defense huh. which is surprising for a team with a losing record uh that doesn't really stand out in any way so if that normalizes that's great but i i think sometimes what's really important as analytics people that, that we need to acknowledge is just because you're due for regression doesn't mean it's necessarily going to occur and when things aren't going your way do, do the players continue to buy into the system? Do they continue to execute at the same level that would warrant uh, or, or would invite that positive regression to come along? That, to me, is the biggest question when it comes to the cast, because I, I think what they're doing works. Uh, they're third in expected effective field goal percentage and 18th in effective field goal percentage. So they, they got positive regression on that side that may be coming. But if they don't get healthy or if they stop buying into what's going on, in a high pressure season like this one, I, I can see things going sideways. It is clearly a high pressure season. This is the first year where you can really genuinely say that the Cleveland Cavaliers should be a playoff contender, should be a team that pushes the teams kind of like what everybody expected to be at the top. Like, but it doesn't like just doesn't matter. Like Cleveland's got to survive. They've got to get through it. And I, I think everybody feels that pressure for sure. But what you've said and and what you've kind of contextualized here is that people have to have a longer term view than just the first 11 or so games of the season. It has to be, hey, let's let's give this 25 games. Let's see where we're at at that point. Are we still dealing with all of these like 
tremendous number of injuries or are things kind of coming to a head and the team's kind of getting some rhythm together and things are starting to look the way that you envisioned it. I think that there's, <laughs> there's reason to have faith here. I think that faith should start with Donovan Mitchell, by the way, who we, we talked about this just, just before getting onto the show. He, his season's kind of gone under the radar, in my opinion. Some of the numbers and some of the production that he's putting together has been really, really cool to see. Yeah, he, he's been tremendous. I, I mean, he's been as efficient as ever. Um, the defensive effort has been really high. I think that's one of the things you were kind of keeping an eye on going into this year is, okay, if the offensive burden is shouldered uh, a little more across the board instead of being such a top-heavy team in terms of production, is he going to contribute on the defensive end? And the fact that he's contributing as much as he is with guys being out, with Garland not being himself, with, you know, uh, all these guys in and out of the lineup, um, I, I think it, it really deserves a, a lot of credit. He, he's giving tremendous effort. Um, I, I think you're still seeing some of the limitations uh, of him as a primary playmaker and a primary initiator in these games without a point guard, but that's not really what they should be, right? Like, so there, there there's some growing pains there too, you know, still trying to develop the, the chemistry with Evan Mobley, whereas last year um, when JB broke up, the the core four in terms of staggering throughout the game what really worked was garland with mobley and mitchell with allen um mitchell with mobley without garland and allen just didn't work and and to this point it hasn't worked this season either uh in in terms of the effectiveness of those lineups but um sometimes you know and and you definitely know this as a team that grew organically uh in, in the denver nuggets and um, really rounded out the rotation and whatnot. Sometimes you have to do things that don't work initially, that the results aren't there because you know it's going to pay off those long-term dividends. It's going to allow you to play a different style uh, in the postseason. You're going to be able to weather the storm of, ah, oh, crap, well, Garland got two early fouls, so now we're going to have to do something else, right? Like, you have to have that lineup and rotational versatility in order to best prepare for the postseason. It is about building habits. It's about understanding who you are through and through as a team. And to this point, Cleveland, I think, is still figuring that out. There's still some layers of that where you have to know what Mobley is going to be in these end of game situations. You have to know who's going to have the ball in their hands, who's going to be sort of driving the bus, if you will, and what is going to just in general, work in in a lot of these cases, whether it's going to be the offensive or defensive end of the floor or both. I I think that there are reasons to have optimism, of course, with this group. That hasn't changed for me in any way, shape, or form. I would just like to see this team get a little bit of a runway here, see if everybody can get back on track, see if everybody can get back healthy, and see what it looks like with Max Struess, with George Niang, sort of pigeonholing and and just, just filling in the gaps, if you will. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. And, you know, no one's going to sit here and feel sorry for the Cavs that they've had to go through these injuries, right? Like, I guess one of the bright sides is the Eastern Conference has been very flat. There's two games out of uh, the three seed. Uh, It seems like everybody's got five or six losses at at this point. Um, So they can turn it around, but the schedule doesn't do them any favors either. Like, the biggest thing that they can kind of hang their hat on after this 10-day road trip is that seven of the next eight games are going to be at home, but they're tough. I'm, I mean, Detroit in-season tournament Friday, that's an, another one of those get-right games. You can hope you you get back to 500, but then you play Denver. Uh, then you have a back-to-back against Philadelphia. You travel and, and play um, Miami the, the next day. 
Miami's coming off of two days of rest while you're playing three games and four nights and, and traveling in between. Uh, you got a couple Ugh. days off, then you play the Lakers and the Raptors back to back, and Toronto's going to have a rest advantage, right? Like this is a, a real, real stretch for them where it, this could be, you know, kind of make or break territory in, in terms of, you know, re- maintaining that confidence, maintaining that buy in. So uh, Darius Garland's questionable for Friday. I'm hoping that he's back. Um, you know, if you get one of Garland and Mitch or Mitchell, I, I think you can feel pretty confident about what you're going to do against Detroit. And then after that, man, like every win, if you get a win, it's going to be a quality win because those are all quality opponents. So if they can even go, you know, three and two over that stretch and, and get some good wins, I, I think uh, that that would be something that you could kind of hang your hat on and, and build some confidence there. In this early portion of the season, it is okay to just survive in advance. It is okay to just feel like you can get uh, just some ground underneath you where you bank a couple wins here or there. As long as you get those done, it's not necessarily about building rhythm at this point of the year. It is more about just figuring things out, getting on the same page, getting on track health-wise, and getting everybody kind of comfortable with the idea of playing together. I, I think that this Cleveland team will be just fine. I know that there are some concerns about the, the schedule. I know that there are some concerns about the kind of teams that they're going to face. I still believe in this group. I think they will be a top four seed by the end of the year. And we'll, we'll still have some of the same concerns by the end, I'm sure. But yeah. hopefully we will have some answers as well. Yeah, and ultimately the playoffs are, are going to be what tests this. And, you know, there's been concerns about Evan Mobley's performance, but and then you look at it, oh, he's averaging career best in points, rebounds, assists, blocks, steals, free throw percentage, uh, percentage of unassisted field goals is the best of his <laughs> career. Um, like he, he's been great since Jared Allen's come back. Like I think one of the lazy things people do is they look at Evan Mobley and they go, seven footer, center, you're a center, right? Like uh, <laughs> to, to quote role models, you white than you Ben Affleck, right? Like it's just, if, if you're tall, you have to play the five. And uh, like really the ground he needs to cover from a player development standpoint is things he needs to do individually. He needs to work on his face-up game. He needs to develop a consistent mid-range jumper, the processing speed. like That's all there, no matter who he's playing with. And I, I think, you know, with the Cavs playing at more tempo, uh, having more options to go to, I think sometimes he's trying to make the right play all the time where he needs to be a little more decisive and assertive, where, you know, this oftentimes the wrong decision is better than indecision. And, and I think uh, you're, you're seeing a much, much better version of Evan Mobley since he's come back. And I, I would be completely negligent if I didn't shout out probably the most consistent member of the Cavs this season, which has been Karis LeVert. I, I think he should absolutely be one of the leading six man of the year uh, candidates. His offense has been great. He's been locked in on the defensive end. Uh, night in, night out, he has been incredibly consistent and has really stepped up as that point of attack defender with Isaac Okoro out. So big, big shout out to Karis LeVert. Love it. Uh, this team, they have a lot of reasons to be excited. I'm sorry. I'm sad that we didn't mention Karis until this point because he does feel like that extra element that a team like a Cleveland needs where, hey, things don't necessarily work out in the first couple of stretches. Karis can definitely bail you out in a lot of different ways. So good player to have. Uh, but we're out of time. He is Justin Rowan covering the Cleveland Cavaliers for the Chase Down Pod. Thank you so much for hopping on, man. Really excited to chat again in six weeks. Yeah, hopefully things are much better. Uh, appreciate you having me on and uh, looking forward to it, buddy.
All right, joined now by Kevin Farrigan, our Chicago Bulls correspondent, host of the Dennis Podman podcast. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for popping on, man. Really appreciate you taking the time. Let's talk about the Chicago Bulls, who are now four and eight. Uh, not not a not a great showing so far this season. And we just got done watching the Orlando Magic uh, beat them at the buzzer, basically with a, a Paolo Bancaro turnaround. Uh, what, what was what was your kind of main takeaway from that game? I mean that the Bulls are are bad. They're a bad basketball team. <laughs> uh, they they that that game for most of it was a crime against basketball. I think oh. <laughs> I think they had like uh, twenty five points with like they were like halfway through the second quarter. Um, they were that was a much less close game than the ending would suggest. Uh, they fought back. They did the thing that they always do, like. Uh, people that procrastinated too much in school uh they they wait until the very last minute to try to <laughs> ryan is raising his hand <laughs> for the audio listeners um but like like those procrastinators they wait till the very end to try to do their work they try to do everything all at once um and sometimes that works but uh more often than not it's uh, not worth doing it that way and that's what happened to the bulls they came all the way back uh, zach levine for once Hit a really clutch shot, but he left uh, almost eight seconds left on the game clock. And uh, yeah, that that gave the um, Magic enough time to to score again and uh, win the game. Um, Disappointing loss, but honestly, at this point, I've already uh, come completely off of my optimism, especially with the rumors I'm sure we'll talk about with Zach Levine. Um, I'm just, I'm ready, man. Give me the, give me the ping pong balls. Just what man. whatever whatever man the this season is i i don't see a path to it being like a good season from a record uh standpoint so throw it in the garbage let's let's get some ping pong balls that's too bad Where, so what what happened then because in between when we talked preseason and and now the bulls are four and eight they're bottom 10 in offense on cleaning the glass but their defense has regressed. Uh, I, I don't think anybody expected them to have a, a fantastic offense, but the defense has really uh, kind of been been way worse than I think people expected. They had a players-only meeting on opening nights. They benched Patrick Williams, and Zach Levine is now in trade rumors. Like, I, I is a horrible start to the season for Chicago. Just can you point to anything in particular that that has been really? kind of a turning point for this group or is it just kind of everything going bad at once oh it's it's one thing for sure they don't like each other like they don't like playing Mm. together that was the thing that i underestimated is that they like the fan base they're not none of them have been happy with how this has been going uh and i think they know probably better than anyone that it wasn't going to get a whole lot better that they just didn't they don't like to play together uh, they they know that they don't have as much success as they should on paper, and yeah, I think they everybody's kind of over it. Um, and I underestimated that. Um, an easy thing to do sometimes if you're being optimistic, uh, if you lose sight of these uh, these guys being human and sports being a very human endeavor where um, egos and uh, just not even just egos, but just like the human condition of like just being tired of being in the same 
uh, rut and grind uh, for multiple years on end can make you want to tap out of it. And I really feel like this team just um, collectively has has tapped out on one another. It's too bad because it, there were moments where this group was very fun. They feel few and far between at this point. And it's it, been it has minute. been a while, but basically since Lonzo was healthy, but uh, now yeah, we're, that was we're... when it was fun was a lot when Lonzo was around and then uh, cruel fate took, <laughs> took his knee <laughs> and him yeah. from us, man. He, he's so good. And I, I, I know it has been lost in the massive amount of injuries that he has sustained and, and the, the knee that is just not really healed properly for him, but it is, it is really too bad and kind of tore apart this franchise in a lot of different ways. Uh, yeah, well, there... you know, who could who could believe that having a, a, a point guard that, that really lifts the ceiling of your team uh, injuring his knee could potentially ruin an, an era in a window? <laughs> what city yeah, could have it, ever had that happen before? Chicago's <laughs> never had anything like that happen before. That's crazy. That would be so. That's absurd. Uh, it's no, wild. It's... If that happened more than once, you might start to think that your team was cursed. Ooh. <laughs> There's uh there's some some Michael Jordan joke there somewhere. Um yeah. Man, I I am al- almost feeling like really bad at this point in, in <laughs> now having to transition into talking about trade rumors because Zach Levine it was just made public that he and the Bulls seem willing at least to explore different avenues to explore a trade and whether it's a a move to a specific destination or just a move away from Chicago it seems like both sides are kind of ready to at least make that public now. Um, where where are you at with it? What what would be your your target kind of package for a guy like Zach Levine? And, and can you see any destinations where it might make sense? Sure. Um, yeah. So I, I made my peace with that Zach was not going to be a bull much longer uh, in the off season when there were all those rumors that. The Bulls desperately wanted to trade him, which, you know, they're they're great at maintaining the the value of their players in the trade market. They they love nothing more than to run a guy down before they trade him. uh, So they get the minimal possible return. Sounds Um, sounds like you you seem a little bit jaded, Kevin. What happened? (laughs) Well, I've followed this franchise since they ran Michael Jordan and, and Phil Jackson out of town prematurely. It, it wears on you <laughs> after yeah. a while. Um, Jerry Reinsdorf sell the team. Um, but it's um, the yeah, it's I don't know the the I, I've made my peace with uh, them losing Zach. I I was encouraged this summer that they weren't just taking any offer, but um, because that seemed like the the holdup uh, with trying to trade him this summer was that just they weren't getting good offers. Right. Um, Flip side of that though is that they were like loud. Uh, it wasn't like like I I'm not anybody, and I heard like through two degrees of separation from people that actually know things that like they were like really trying to get rid of Zach. Um, and so that doesn't help his market value. So th- they put themselves in like this untenable situation where they don't want to take a a bad return for Zach. But they've made it so clear that they are done with him that I don't, I don't really know like what a good like what when you've already pre-negotiated to get into yourself like that. What does a good package look like? 
I would like like a young player salary filler and like at least two first round picks, like decent ones, not like, you know, going to be late first rounders. Um, I don't know if Karnaschovas can pull that off. I don't think he's won a single negotiation, whether with a player or with a team in a trade uh, since he's gotten in the job. Uh, so, you know, I'm not optimistic about him negotiating a good value uh, on this trade, especially not with clutch behind the scenes already exerting pressure now. Uh, well, not now. I mean, they've been doing, but it, it's less behind the scenes now and more in front of the scenes. Yeah. <laughs> um, they've, they've taken it from uh, one side of the curtain to the other. Um, but yeah, I don't feel great about it, but I also am just ready to move on from this era of Bulls basketball. So at this point, I'm just like, pull the mandate off. Let's go. Yeah. With DeMar kind of on, on his expiring contract, Vucevic. He looks cooked. He does yeah. not look good. DeMar does not look good so far. DeMar's been tough. Uh, he also like playing power forward. That will do that to you. Just, just having to yeah. do that. Well, also being 34, like sure. <laughs> I'm 37 now, but like when I, even when I was 34, it was, I mean, I'm not a, you know, a, a high level athlete by any means, but I just know like being a 34 year old, your body doesn't feel good. It, yeah. it, it really doesn't. Uh, and it, it doesn't get better. <laughs> so like that's <laughs> to that point. Uh, yeah. I really hope that the bulls don't give him an extension because uh, you can see the, the signs of decline pretty significantly to start this year. And maybe it'll bounce back. Maybe it'll just take him longer to like, you know, ease into his old man body <laughs> uh, yeah, in seasons and- going forward. But I don't want to be paying paying his next contract. Like, I don't know. I'm not Reducing happy. Reducing his role, like for, for whatever te- team he is on going forward, seems like the right call. Uh, but if it is the Bulls, I... I- I don't feel great about the idea of trading Zach Levine and then building around DeMar. Like that just doesn't seem like the right call. And if if they are going to trade Zach, then it's going to have to come with kind of a, a entire reshuffling of the organization, in my opinion. It, just it, it should if they were a competent organization. But the scuttlebutt that I've heard is that they want to just trade Zach and keep like Alex Caruso and DeMar DeRozan and just try they like think that zach is the problem and not like their top to bottom failures <laughs> like yeah it's, I, it's to really me, I, don't take it this the wrong it, way it doesn't make sense don't take this the wrong way but like the problem is that they don't have a top guy and they don't have a top two guy really like zach no. is probably more comparable to a Bradley Beal or somewhere somewhere in that general range instead of the Devin I think Booker. he's better than Bradley Beal. I'll push back on that a little bit. I think Bradley Beal hasn't been good for a few years, but sure. And I think Zach is still very good. Um, I just think that the problem with Zach is that Zach thinks Zach is a top eight player, yeah. <laughs> and um, so for Zach to really thrive, he needs to be on a team where he is clearly not the man. Uh, he needs to be on a team with somebody of like the level of like a Luca or a Giannis or, you know, he can't be on Giannis's team because Dame's already there. But like uh, if they could swing a trade with Dallas, he would look great there as the third guy with Kyrie and Luca. He would look amazing. Um, and I think he would actually accept playing a role with those guys because uh, Kyrie has the respect of every Hooper. Um, <laughs> people all, all think that that guy is like basically god um and zach is nothing if not a hooper and luca is luca like everybody knows that 
that Luca is, uh, you know, a bad man. I don't, I don't know if we're allowed to curse, but <laughs> yeah, you're good. You're good. Um, um, if what about, what about golden state for clay and somebody like, uh, Kaminga and, and draft picks. Um, so I would want Brandon Podjemski. I liked him in the draft and I like him better already than, um, Kaminga. I'm not sure. a Kaminga guy. Um, I might want Moses Moody and Podjemski. Um, I'd take Clay's contract to just to you know wipe the Zach contract off, basically. And yeah, if they threw in a couple of picks, that that's like it's not an amazing return. Um, but I really like Podjemski, um, even as as just like a bench guard. Uh, and yeah. I think Moses Moody can be like someday can be a slightly below average starter right now. I think he's still not great, but I I think, I think he's, he's probably got a higher ceiling than that in my opinion, but either way, ceilings higher. I just don't think he's going to hit it. Sure. Sure. (laughs) Like most people don't. Most important thing. And like in, in all of these situations, you're looking for an expiring contract to kind of clear your books. You're looking for a young prospect. You're looking for some draft capital and the hope being again, this is, is that- what you would do if you were a sane team, but the Bulls are a team that thinks that Zach is the problem, so they might just take like not even expiring contracts, they like just might take like players they think are good back and like not even get picks because that's the kind of franchise they are. <laughs> I, I like the, kind the of idea dumb stuff that they do. I like the idea because you, you mentioned hey, who is the alpha, who is the guy? Put him with Steph, Steph is the alpha, Steph yeah, is no, the, that, I mean, like, that would be great for his sense. career. Uh, yeah, to put him in the Clay Thompson role. Yeah, and like he's better than Clay by a lot right now, and there's there's no reason why he couldn't flourish in a system like that if he because I think he would commit to more off ball movement if he believed in the actual system working. Problem is, is that in Chicago he hasn't really done that because I I can't imagine he feels that there's much of a payoff for committing to that level of system. Well, there's there's not a system though. That's the other thing. Is yeah. that Billy Donovan is a very good defensive coach, but his offense is generally just to kind of let guys cook and do what they want, which doesn't like lend itself to um, structure and the ability to put a guy like Zach in a role that you want him in. Um, instead, it just gives him all the um, all the you know room to freelance which is like just giving him enough rope to hang himself you know it's just yeah it's not good he's he's got to be in some structure for sure um but look it is what it is uh we'll we'll probably have multiple conversations about this as they try to figure out what to do is there anything else you want to cover for the bulls before we get out of here stop making excuses for patrick williams he's been bad it's fine to say that he's been bad he's been very bad and um he's not the only problem on the team there's a lot of them but um, stop acting like he's not one of them, because uh, I see a lot of that. There's a lot, a lot of people that, you know, treat Patrick Williams like a, like a, a small, you know, animal to be protected or something. <laughs> and he's a basketball player. He's playing bad. It's okay to criticize him for playing bad. Um, he's fine on defense. He's good. He's good on defense. But yeah, his offense I mean, him, is inexcusable. Him not being able to get a shot up at the end of that game. Just that we just watched. That's like, like just awareness stuff. Like that. Like, that's that's also just the kind of stuff that like will drive me crazy because like it's just like no time and situation. Like how like that's like the most that basic hard. stuff. Look at the clock. <laughs> look where you are. Get up a yeah. shot. Like it's it's to me it, it is a it is something that has always plagued him. It is the that kind of awareness on both He's, ends of the floor. 
That is the thing. A lot of people could say he's not aggressive. So I'll say this quickly. We can get out of here. Uh, A lot of people say that Pat's not aggressive. The problem isn't that Pat isn't aggressive so much is that he takes forever to figure out what he's going to do. He, his processing speed is uh, just not there on really on either end. I mean, he makes up for it on defense because he's such a, you know, um, physical specimen (laughs) and like, it's hard for guys to move him. Um, and he does slide his feet well, but like, just in terms of like, just knowing what to do, he always feels like he's a step behind, but especially on offense, it's like his decision tree should be so small because it's just like, catch the ball. Am I open? Okay. I should shoot. If not, then drive like, or pass or swing. Like, like those are your, it's a very simple decision tree. Uh, and he, he just like short circuits a lot of the times, even when he's open. And yeah, it's just, it's not good. It's, his mind is actually his biggest uh, thing holding him back and not in the way that people mostly say, which is like, he needs to be more aggressive or he doesn't have the dog in him. It's like, no, he just like is, he's thinking a lot out there, uh, way more than you want. He needs to be in a situation where the team is clearly rebuilding and they give him opportunities to learn and to fail and to improve. Yeah. And well, that's, that, not, that's not going to happen here because this is an, an incompetent organization. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> on that note he is kevin Farragut, a host of That's the right. dennis podman show uh make sure to go follow him on twitter at nba Couchside. uh kevin thank you so much for hopping on man really appreciate you taking the time yeah of course thanks ryan all right joined now by ku khalil he's the host of locked on pistons thank you so much ku for hopping on really appreciate you taking the time let's talk about detroit let's talk about uh, not a great start to the season. It, it felt like it was going to be a good start with a, a two and one record, and honestly, it, it just turned to two and ten really quickly, didn't it? Yeah, uh, things definitely went south very, very quickly, and it has the potential because of the upcoming schedule to really uh, spiral out of control, which was definitely not how the Pistons wanted this to go. Yeah, it's too bad. Twenty third in net rating, twenty third in offense, twenty second in defense. Just feels really below average across the board in a lot of ways. I think the numbers are a little bit better than what the record suggests. It's just like the the actual kind of clutch time stuff and then finishing off games has been, it's it's tougher in some aspects, but there have also been some blowouts here and there. Cade's numbers have been both good and bad, I think, depending on who you ask. Uh, some of the, the actual points and assist numbers and leading the team have been pretty good. Some of the efficiency numbers have been pretty bad. How do you help him out? What's what's the what's been the story behind Cade's return to the court? It's been a very toxic time in the Pistons community because of what's going on with Cade. Um, so the starting lineup that the Detroit Pistons opened up the season with was Cade, Killian Hayes, Asar Thompson, Isaiah Stewart, and Jalen Duran. The whole idea behind that was to go defense first. They Troy Weaver has talked about building a defensive identity, getting back to what the Pistons are supposed to be about when they won games or won championships and stuff. And Monty Williams has done nothing but echo that. So it made sense at that point, like, okay, it seems like they're really trying, they're being serious. They're not just talking about it. They, for real, are saying defense is going to be a big deal for them. Um, so obviously that meant they didn't start Jane Ivey. Um, Boyan Bogdanovich is hurt. Um, Monte Morris was hurt. Um, but that was the lineup they went with. And they started off 2-1. and one. And it was honestly, it, it, it looked promising because of the yeah. play of Cade and then the play of Jalen Duran, who, if the Pistons wanted to go defense first, 
their only chance of doing so was with Jalen Duren healthy. And once Jalen Duren got hurt in game four, everything's now went out of control. And that's, that's one of the main reasons why it's killed Cade efficiency-wise is one, he doesn't have his lob threat, his pick-and-roll partner, which is what they did a lot in the first two games. He doesn't have that guy. When he has played, he hasn't been healthy. He's hurt it twice trying to play through it. Uh, Jalen Duren, that is, his ankle, um, which is not good. Um, not good. So doesn't have his pick-and-roll partner. And by going defense first in the starting lineup without the guy that's really going to make it defensive first, you're then basically just playing a lineup that doesn't make sense at that point. Like it, With Jalen Duren, it's like, okay, you have good defenders in front of him. He's going to be a great rim protector. He was that through the first three games. It looked like he was making this insane jump at 19 years old. It was like, oh, my God, he's averaging like 2.5 blocks a game. He's averaging like 16 rebounds a game. The dude's carrying. And the defense was working. But then once he got hurt, now you're just playing a bunch of guys who can't shoot. Or Killian A's is actually shooting 38% over the last nine games. Stu is shooting 44% from three this year. The problem yeah. is, is that these guys hitting open shots it, it sounds really weird to say this for people listening, probably. But those guys hitting open shots is it, like defenses are taking that as a win. Like they're they just because they're hitting open shots doesn't mean they have gravity with their shots. The, the defenses are picking, are choosing. That's who they want to take the open shots because they don't respect them. And everyone's just sitting in the paint on Cade. So you have Killian's defender helping off. You have Isaiah Stewart's defender helping off. Uh, Asar Thompson, who we'll, we'll talk about soon. Asar Thompson's guy helping off, uh, helping off. Marvin Bagley, who's been playing for Jalen Duran, his guy obviously not respecting the three. So Cade's really, since Duran went down and got hurt in the game four, he's dealing with a lineup that has no spacing and no gravity outside of him, and he's attracting the entire defense anytime he puts the ball on the ground. Um, not, last thing I'll say is that there was a game against Atlanta, or actually not Atlanta, the game before Atlanta, team played a, a two-three zone. And it was basically a double Cade with three people in the backside zone at the top of the key. Every time Cade got the ball at the top of the key, they just played up and took him the ball, took the ball away from him. Played aggressive as I've ever seen someone play at the nail, and said, "If you're going to hit the guy at the wing and have him hit a three, so be it. Like it's going to happen, but you're not going to beat us." And that's the kind of coverages he's been dealing with, and it's killing his efficiency. Yeah, just I know that there has been a lot of discussion about. Man, is it can he be the guy if he's not efficient enough? Can he be the guy if if things are are not running well when he's running the keys? I, I don't subscribe to that at all. I, I think that there are some things that he can help himself in some ways, but at some point the Pistons are gonna have to help him by playing the right people. And this Ivy situation has been odd. Everything about it has been just very crazy. I, I know Killian is your guy in some ways, but he just doesn't really make a lot of sense if you're playing a lineup with us, R. Thompson and Kate Cunningham and hopefully Jalen Dern at that point. So I, I'm going to ask you, you know, let's do it now. Build me your ideal lineup around Cade, Asar, and Jalen Dern. So I, I'm glad you asked me this. I do want to buffer your point that you said at the beginning of this is that I said this on the podcast literally yesterday, Locked on Pistons. Cade, I think, is going to be a superstar. I think he's going to be absolutely fantastic. I love him. But he's not one yet. He's not that good yet. He's not that good of a player right now. And that's okay to say. He needs help. People are saying that like, oh, well, great players, they make their teammates better. They can get through this kind of stuff. Cade's not great yet. He's 22. It, it takes he's time. He, and like, even for a guy like Jokic, for a guy like LeBron, it took time for those guys to get there. And Cade missed his entire second season. People have to be more patient with this dude. 
and don't try to box him in with like in a phone booth and then expect him to make magic out of mincemeat. Right, right. So that's just the, I want to make that clear. Like, yes, I think Cade's going to be great in the long term, but his team still needs to help him when he's not yet. Like, he's still growing. He is still developing himself, and his team needs to help him. Um, so my ideal starting lineup, it, it really just depends because if the Pistons want to keep some semblance of, like, defense, then it's tough. It's going to be tough to do so. If, if you're wanting me to build, like, the best lineup that just offensively best optimizes Cade with what they have, which is what it seems like a lot of people would like them to do. Makes sense. And, you know, he's a franchise player. Makes sense. Um, sure. I, I'd probably go Cade, Ivy. Um, if everyone's healthy, this is. I'd go Cade, Ivy, Asar, or Cade, Ivy, Bojan, Asar, put Asar at the four, and then Duran. That's probably the lineup I'd go with. I'd experiment possibly with, like, a Cade, Ivy, Livers, Asar, um, Duran, because then Livers has, more t- has much better... Uh, team defender, a good shooter as well on the wing, sneaky athletic. So he's not going to bring the same type of gravity Boyan is, but he's going to bring some gravity while not being as a bad defender like Boyan is. I'd experiment with that. And something I think you're probably going to see, Monty did say today that he's going to be tinkering with stuff to get Cade more spacing on the floor. Based off the things he's said lately and the based off the evidence of what he's been trying, you've been seeing him slowly start to use Cade in the last two games. I think there's a good chance now. People don't go crazy on me. I'm just I'm, I'm I'm just the messenger here, but I think there's a there's a slight chance that you might see something like Ivy Killian Cade Asar Dern or a three guard lineup with Cade and play him off ball and have multiple ball handlers around him to maintain some defense and get Ivy on the floor who can really collapse defenses and really cause pressure off ball. I don't think it's likely that happens, but. We've seen them now play three-guard lineups a lot the last few games with Killian, Cade, whether it's Killian, Cade, Sasser, Killian, Cade, Ivy. And I think that is just a slight chance to throw out there. It's, an ex- it, it's a possible chance, but I do think my pick, if I had to pick one, I'd go Cade, Ivy, Boyan, Asar, Duran, when they're all healthy. Yeah, and I think that makes sense. And I think there's the, the logic of add a stretch four, add somebody who can, like combination with a rim rolling five makes a lot of sense. And then, You've got your your defense all kind of all defense guy in Asar. And then you probably need some sort of combo guard next to Cade, somebody who can handle the ball a little bit, can play off the ball a little bit. It's why this Ivy situation to me has been so odd, because uh, to me, it just it feels so logical for him to be out there and for them to learn how to play together. But say uh, la vie, that's that's not what's going to happen uh, clearly. And uh, or, or maybe it will. And maybe this is something that, that uh, Monty's kind of slow playing. Uh, let me ask you this. When when can we expect Boyan and Monty Morris back? Because I, I feel like there have been conflicting reports and non-reports about it. So the report that we got um, that the PR team sent out four weeks ago, I believe it was October 25th or somewhere. Yeah, October 24th or 25th, I believe. They said in three to four weeks, you'd get an update or reevaluation on Boyan. In three to four weeks, you get a reevaluation on Monte Morris and you get a reevaluation on Isaiah Livers. Now, today, Isaiah Livers was practicing, so that sounds like he's getting pretty close to coming back. We have not heard anything on Bojan, um, and we heard that Monte Moore still did not practice today. That's all we've gotten. Um, I think Livers will come back soon, within the next week probably. I think he, he's probably coming back soon. Um, it, the Monte Morris and Bojan Bogdanovic situation, and heck, even throw Alec Burke's situation in there as well, 
it's really going to be an interesting thing to watch for the next month, I'd say. Because I don't, again, I, I'm not saying this is likely. I wouldn't bet my money on this. But there is definitely, like, there's pathways. There is this tiny pathway. If you look, if you squint, like, through the forest with, you know, it's very hidden. There is a pathway where Boyan just doesn't play for the Pistons this year. Like, he, mm-hmm. he gets traded before he even, like, puts on the Pistons uniform again. There's, I think there's a slight chance. I don't think it's as likely at all. But there is a slight chance that maybe Monte Morris gets traded within the next month. Same thing with Alec Burks. It's, very, it's just a very weird situation. Maybe not weird. Interesting situation going on right now. Because the Pistons, when they, hot, when they got Monte Morris, it was to replace basically Killian and Hayes. But they kept Killian around to try to prove if he actually developed this offseason. I heard he had a strong offseason. The off, front office heard about it. They, want, they gave him a chance in preseason to show it. He played really well in preseason. So he got the start to start the year. First two games didn't go well. Last nine games, he's averaging like 10 and 6 on 43-38 splits. So he's playing well last nine games. So now you find yourself in this position of, oh, he actually has played decent. Like, he actually has gotten better. And the guy we just replaced him with, or we got him to replace him, is hurt and he's coming back. So now what do we do? Like, we can't play both Mm -hmm. of them. So who's trading? Like, are we getting rid of one of them? Are we sitting one on the bench? Same thing with Boyan. Boyan was going to start this year. But he was hurt, so now Asar's starting. And now we're seeing how great Asar, like, how amazing Asar is. So now what happens? Like, Boyan comes back, and is the whole defensive mindset now going out the window? Is Boyan coming back to the starting lineup? Is Boyan going to get traded now? Like, it's... And then they have the issue of not having a backup five now with Duran being out. They like oh, and they, to be clear, like the the logical solution to that is to start Boyan at the four and let Isaiah Stewart back up at the five. Why is that not really a consideration? <laughs> that seems I, I, kind of that's odd. what I would. Yes, that's what I would do. I'd play Stu as the backup five and start Duran. But when Duran specifically when Duran's been out, I mean they they don't even trust James Wiseman. They just won't play. Like the first game Duran was out, they just didn't play Wiseman. They wouldn't play him. Second game, they tried to play him and then just didn't play him in the second half. He had a fine stint this past game, but they clearly don't trust Wiseman as the third big. So without Duran, you're like stacked up on all these guards that are coming back healthy, and you're like, oh, how is this? Like, where are we going to fit these mints? Meanwhile, you don't have enough centers for all the jokes Weaver has gotten over the last few years of loving big men. Now all of a sudden, they don't have fives. So it's like, it's like, it's a very, it's a very, very interesting situation. I don't know when they're coming back. Liver should be back soon. They should be getting really evaluated if the report was true, what we got. Um, they should be getting reevaluated at some point this week. This week, and we should get some kind of update soon. Look, I I can understand why this team is two and ten when your veterans are out and you're playing a bunch of young guys and you're trying to figure out and guys are kind of out of position and it's a little bit uncomfortable. Obviously, it's logical why they're two and ten. Uh, they've got to start showing something together at some point, and this is this is what this year is all about. Uh, I remember the Orlando Magic started last year pretty badly. And then they figured it out and they, they started playing together and they developed some chemistry and lo and behold, you start to see the vision with that group. This group does have that potential to do it too. And I think we should wrap it up with this. Asar Thompson, we have, we've talked around him a little bit. The dude is so fun to watch. And I, I know uh, thinking basketball, Ben Taylor, he put out a, an awesome Asar Thompson video that everybody should go check out. I am blown away by the movement, by the athleticism, and by the feel. Like, he looks like the next great defensive player. He's, he's fantastic, dude. Like, I, there's nothing else. Like, I can't. 
now he obviously still has stuff he has to develop. He doesn't have a jumper right now. Like he still has to get better. Um, his finishing with his, his footwork on his drives and his finishes need to get better. It will help his finishing. So there's areas he needs to improve on. He's a rookie, obviously. But, I mean, this is a guy I've been high on since before the draft. This is who I wanted the Pistons to draft. I love both him and his brother. I don't think there's, like, outside him and Amen, I don't know how many athletes you'd say there are better than them, athleticism-wise, in the NBA. Like, I, I, it'd be hard to find one. Um, and him defensively, it's just crazy. He makes plays defensively that are just like, you should not be able to do that. He'll get beat off the dribble. You think a guy has a step on him, and, like, like that, he's back in front of them. All of a sudden, he's like, he's back in front of them. He's blocking their shot. He's he's blocking jump shots, step back jump shots from Damian Lillard. He's completely shutting down SGA. Like, and I watched the thing in basketball video too. It was it was a fantastic breakdown. Asar has been fantastic defensively. I most rookies are bad defensively, but he's like not just good for a rookie. Like I've been saying on the podcast, I'm not even joking. Like this is possibility he might be like a top ten defender. Right now, like through the first 11 games, 12 games, like that's how crazy defensively he's been. Um, and then you talk about his feel. His feel is his feel is off the charts. High IQ player, plays the right way, isn't trying to take 30 shots, 20 shots a game, just trying to make the right play all the time. Crazy vision, crazy transition playmaker, kind of reminds me of Lonzo in transition. Like it's, there's so much to like about this dude. It's just, I, he's proven, I think already through 12 games, he's not going to be just a piece. For the he's going to be he's one of their cornerstones, like he is he is right there with Cade and Durant as a cornerstone piece. Like he is going to be a rock of this team. Get healthy, play Cade, Jalen, and Durant or Cade, Jalen, and Asar together. Find some shooting. Like it should not be this hard. This can it, really turn around, and I have zero reason to doubt that Detroit can make this happen. They can do this, and this could turn into something really fun really quickly. Uh, but there, some tough moves may have to be made, and I hope that Monty Williams is the right guy to do it. So we will see. He is Kukalil, host of the Locked on Pistons podcast. Everybody, make sure to go give him a follow. Make sure to go check out his work over at Locked on Pistons. Ku, thank you so much for, check, uh, for checking in with me. I'll talk to you in six weeks, all right? Appreciate you, man. All right, everybody, that is going to do it for this episode of The Alley-Oop. Thank you so much to my Central Division correspondents for popping on. Always really appreciate talking to this crew. Uh, So many awesome voices, so many interesting perspectives. Always appreciate learning more about the Central Division. Next week is Thanksgiving. Probably going to give my Pacific Division folks the week off, so you'll be hearing from a special guest on Tuesday, but there will not be an episode on Friday, just so that everybody has a good holiday weekend. Hope everybody enjoys their weekend. Make sure to rate, review, and follow the podcast. We'll talk to you guys next week.